I'm back, baby! I'm back! Welcome back and welcome to season two of Me and My Friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things the amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. But before we dive in, it's been a while, so it's time for a recap. And a recap of Amazing Spider-Man from Amazing Fantasy 15 to Amazing Spider-Man number 15 is available on the episode Ain't No Punchlines, The Fist Flying 2, A Year and Some Change. For everything else since, strap in. Give me 90 seconds on the clock. Last season on Me and My Friend Pete. In the first ever Amazing Spider-Man annual, Spidey loses his powers, gets them back, and takes on the Sinister Six for the first time to save his aunt and on-again, off-again sweetheart, Betty Brant. In 16, Spidey faces off against the Ringmaster and his circus of crime with a little help from the man without fear himself, the blind brawler, Daredevil. In 17, Spidey becomes the most loathed hero in New York after crashing a movie set, then running out on a fight against the Grinning Green Goblin after finding out Aunt May has had a heart attack. And oh yeah, Betty's done with him. In 18, Pete tries to make a buck in more ways than one to support a recovering Aunt May. Refuses to fight the Sandman one-on-one, we get the return of Spider-Flash Thompson, who gets his butt kicked thoroughly trying to stop a Grand Theft Auto in progress. Our first black character, and a reminder from Aunt May that a person needs gumption, the will to live, and to fight. In 19, Pete is introduced to Ned Leeds, Betty's new beau and demon reporter down at the Daily Bugle. But Pete's not worried because Spidey is back in action just in time to take on the greatest villainous group in comics history, the Enforcers. Headed this issue by none other than the Sandman. With the help of the Long Island Igniter, the Human Torch. In 20, JJ puts his money where his mouth is and secretly funds an experimental procedure that gives stalker turned supervillain Matt Gargan the powers of a scorpion. Scorpion beats Spidey two times in one issue, a first, but one out of three will get you into Cooperstown and the spider bounces back, reminding JJ after that it ain't the size of the spider in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the spider. In 21, Pete helps a young lady named Doris, has a coke and a smile with her, and is pressed by the human torch, Doris's boyfriend, who warns my friend to stay away from his dame. But the torch is worried about the wrong thing. Abner Jenkins, aka The Beetle, is released from prison and stalks Doris, waiting for his chance to strike. We get Spidey vs. Beetle vs. Spidey vs. Torch vs. Beetle, then a Marvel team-up that leaves the penthouse floors of a building leveled. 22, we get the rebranded Circus of Crime attacking an art exhibit with feet on display, leaving J. Jonah Jameson in the hospital, ousting the ringmaster and changing their names to the Masters of Menace with the clown and Princess Python leading them. They square off against Spidey in a slugfest that proves all a good villain needs is a hook and a unicycle. In 23, a seemingly reformed Green Goblin tries to get the Alphabet Boys on Lucky Lobo, current head of New York's crime syndicate. But when Spidey tries to help, he and Goblin have one of their greatest early battles at a water treatment plant, fighting to a standstill. And oh yeah, Frederick Foswell, aka The Big Man, was released from prison and given his old job back by Jameson. 
24, Spidey thinks he's losing his mind after seeing images of his greatest foes randomly throughout the city. Seeking the aid of peace psychiatrist Ludwig Reinhardt, he's seconds away from revealing his secret identity to the man before an unwitting Jameson and the brand X kid himself, Flash Thompson, stumble onto the scene revealing that the good doctor is none other than the greatest illusionist in Marvel history, the master of the unnecessary monologue, Mysterio. And in 25, Pete, hoping to make JJ look like a fool and make some donuts in the process, convinces the miserable magnate to listen to a robotics expert named Smythe, who's crafted the very first spider-slaying machine. JJ takes the controls, Spidey almost takes an L, gets the W, but loses his Spidey costume in the wind. And all of us, minus my friend Pete, take in the shock on the faces of Betty Brant and Liz Allen as we get the very first appearance of the one and only Mary Jane Watson. That's where we are, and here's where we're going. This week, we're running through the Amazing Spider-Man number 26, The Mystery of the Man in the Crime Master's Mask. We've got fists flying fast against the Foolsville faithful as Flash has finally bought his button. We've got the Crime Master making his move on New York's rackets and an uneasy alliance with the villain rapidly climbing the rogue gallery list, the Green Goblin. And the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, dealing with all of this without his costume. I hope you're fully clothed. We've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado. We've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 26. The mystery of the man in the crime master's mask. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. This issue was stealthily scripted by Smiling Stanley, painstakingly plotted and drawn by Swingin' Steve Ditko, and lovingly lettered by Sparkling Sam Rosen. So yes, it's another S&S&S production. The cover. The cover of this beauty has the amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman shade red with black shadow beneath Spidey's name. Under this, we get the subtitle. The Man in the Crime Master's Mask. And beneath this, we see Spidey in one of his usual precarious situations. This time, he's facing us, his right leg on the edge of a ledge of a rooftop, his left slightly raised off the roof, and both arms up in shock. He's not alone on the roof. There's a man here wearing a tan suit jacket, brown pants and loafers, and a red tie. The guy's got on a Yankee blue fedora with an orange band and navy blue gloves to match. On his face, he's wearing a black mask with orange trim. In his left hand at his side, he's holding a revolver. In his raised right hand, he's got the spritzer pump from an old school perfume bottle and is using it to squeeze lime green gas into Spidey's face. The East River, because it's always the East River, is in the background. But that ain't all that's there. We have some buildings beautifully drawn as is Ditko's nature, stage right, and soaring high above these buildings on his silver goblin glider, a purple gloved fist raised in triumph, his eternal smile fixed on his green mask, his nightcap whipping behind him is the green goblin. Just once I like Spidey on the cover having a little lunch. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the title of this issue. The mystery of the man in the crime master's mask. Beneath it, in a goldenrod space, we get a giant white question mark and a beautiful image of Spidey sitting inside of it. His left leg dangling on the upside down lowercase i of the question mark, his right leg up on the crook of the thing. He's got his left hand on his left thigh, his right elbow on his right knee, and that hand is on his face. Above his head, 
Little question marks are dancing like he's Swaggy P in one of the most famous memes. Spidey's got questions. Where did Aunt May put my Spire costume? Why does Aunt May insist on hooking me up with that Watson girl? How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Why is Jones so obsessed with the Iron Fist? And stage right of the pondering Spidey, we get the Green Goblin. His hands on his hips, his pink bag of tricks at his side, head thrown back, laughing. To his right and a couple of steps in front of him, we see Frederick Foswell in a green suit and orange bow tie. His gray widow's peaked hair combed back neatly, standing with his hands at his side and to his right, we see the crime master in profile. We've got the old bait and switch. Crime master's suit is all tan now, his hat too. His mask is now black and white and reminds me of Rorschach's inkblot mask from the Watchmen comic. Crime master's gloves are white. One thing ain't changed though, that revolver in his left hand. We've got a slew of caption boxes in sky blue. Both the Crime Master and the Green Goblin know each other's true identities, but what strange secret is known only to Frederick Foswell? Can Spider-Man solve this dark riddle, cloaked within a grim puzzle, hidden beneath the shadows of a deadly enigma? What a mystery! We turn the page. Page two opens to a caption box. With the coming of the night, a silent teenager furtively opens his bedroom door. Dot, dot. Dot. And we get the goldenrod kid, Peter Parker, peering around the corner of his bedroom door. He's got one thing on his mind, getting the costume back that Aunt May took from him last issue. That was ASM number 25, or The Kavorka Chronicles, here on Me and My Friend Pete. Back to Pete creeps down the hall in a white tee, Steve Jobs blue slacks, and house slippers. He's heading to Aunt May's room, and he presses his ear on the door once he gets there, thinking that he can tell she's sleeping by the way she's breathing. The coast clear, he goes on the hunt. He goes outside to check the trash cans. No dice. But that's good, means the costume will still be somewhere in the house and May hasn't thrown it away. Yet, Pete goes back inside and keeps looking. I tried every closet and cupboard. There isn't a sign of it. Perhaps in the attic. So Pete heads up to the attic and we see him checking out May's chest where she keeps her heirlooms and photos of Uncle Ben. But the costume isn't there either. Pete thinks the costume has to be in Aunt May's room, but he can't check in there until the sun rises. Dejected, he makes his way back to his room and sits down on his bed, running a hand through his hair. What a pickle to be in! A Spider-Man without his costume is like a beetle without his hair. It can only happen to me! The Beatles did have some beautiful hair, so I don't think Pete's wrong on this one. He lays down and we get a gorgeous shot of his head pressed into his pillow as he wishes he knew what Jameson did with the costume he was forced to leave behind battling the Spider Slayer last issue. But there's nothing Pete can do about it, so he thinks he'll worry about it tomorrow and goes to sleep. But there are still more worries in store for the sleeping Peter Parker, for at that very moment, under cover of darkness, a mysterious meeting is taking place. Dot, dot, dot. And we're on the Parker docks, watching the Green Goblin, always on his glider, always ready for action, squabbling with the Crime Master. Green Goblin, jerking his thumb at himself, shouts at the Crime Master that he can't back out of their deal, that Goblin's brains and Crime Master's knowledge of the rackets would make them an unstoppable underworld force. Crime Master listens, but he's changed his mind. He says, Forget it. I decided I don't need you. I'm the Crime Master. I can do it alone. Green Goblin's like, what are you talking about? I told you my secret identity. I won't let you get away with this. But if we're learning anything about the crime master's disposition, it's one part's gangster, one part's brazen. Big brass. He says, There's nothing you can do. Try to stop me, and I'll see to it that the world knows who you really are. Now get lost. I've got things to do. Unless you're willing to take orders from me, I can always use another flunky. How about it, goblin? 
You can be my flunky, he said. He turns his back on the goblin, storming onto page three. It's a gorgeous panel. Crime Master is stepping with purpose. Ditko doing the W. Translation, working. Goblin is pissed. Flying away, he screams, You've outsmarted yourself this time. Remember, I know who you are too. So you haven't heard the last of me. So Green Goblin knows who the Crime Master is as well. But Crime Master isn't worried. He knows they're playing a high stakes game of checkers and they both only have one piece left. That's a stalemate. Later, at the hideout of one of the city's many underworld mobs, dot, dot, dot. We've got gangsters sitting around a table in a dark room, the only light coming from a hanging lamp overhead in our panel of the week. One guy sitting reversed on a chair, his arms braced on the back of the thing. Another guy sipping water with a toothpick in his mouth, pinky out. He fancy. Another dude's got his leg up on his chair, standing with a clenched fist. We've got a guy in a flat cap and another guy in a fedora and blazer. They are all steamed. Clinch Fist says the NYPD has come down on the city's mobs hard. So you know Tomas, Joe, and co. have been working. These gangsters can't get anything done. Fedora and Blazer says if that ain't bad enough, Spidey's always on the prowl, and they don't know when that Spidey signal is going to light up the night on one of their capers. We're outside of the window next panel. Clinch Fist and Profile saying they've got to pull a job soon or call it quits. You don't kick up in the mob, you get kicked out. It's simple. But none of them notice the brown rope fall from the roof just outside of the window as someone from off panel thinks that they're just in time. The crime master, burning the midnight oil, descends the rope in the next panel. His right hand clenching the twine, a midnight blue ball in his left, he thinks it's the perfect time to leave a calling card and tosses the ball into the window. Fedora spots the ball flying immediately, shouting, look out! Clint Fish shouts for them to duck because it's a bomb. And we get a hilarious shot of the goons all on the floor. We see the hand of the man who had his pinky out holding the ball that's burst open, revealing a note that Clint Fish grabs while on his hands and knees. He reads, Gimme, I'll read it. This is your first and last notice from now on. I'm taking over the rackets. To find me, it will not be a false alarm next time. It's signed, the Crime Master. None of them know who this guy is. Crime Master, back on the ground and crossing the street in the final panel, gets out of there thinking his plan worked perfectly. But it's only the beginning. Minutes later, in a room above a parked automobile which the Crime Master has just walked away from. Dot, dot, dot. The man is not done. We see a guy sleeping in profile. And this guy is ready for whatever. He's got a telephone on a nightstand for good news and a gun in front of it for the bad. Come through that man's door if you wanna. But that's not the crime master's MO. He gives the guy a call, waking the man from his sleep. Guy picks up and we get a clear shot of his face, round with thick arching eyebrows, brown hair and whiskers where a mustache should be. Before he can speak, crime master's barking orders. Don't say a word. Look out your window at your car which is downstairs. Keep watching it. The guy crawls out of bed and shuffles over to his window, just in time to see his car explode. But he's barely bothered. This guy's made of sterner stuff than an exploding car that he's not in. He starts to ask who this guy thinks he is, but Crime Master tells him to shut up, that the Crime Master's taking over now. And this guy hasn't heard of him. He knows him now, though. Next panel, we see a bunch of different talking heads, all magia, gossiping about this new threat to their power. A guy with slicked back hair says Crime Master's some kind of hotshot. Another guy says we may need this kind of hotshot. A third, Dapper Dan type, says they should fight him. That nobody breathing is taking over his mob. He wants to put Crime Master in the dirt. And a brown haired guy looking dead at us asks the right question. 
How does this guy know who they all are? And the seeds of doubt and suspicion grow. A guy in a green bow tie says Crime Master must be from the Rackets. That he could even be one of them. That either way, he's dangerous. And this guy is right. Just before dawn, we're outside of a slightly cracked window with the blinds drawn next to a beautifully drawn fire escape. This is the Crime Master's apartment. He closes the window, lowers the blinds, and thinks, The game I'm playing is a dangerous one. One error, one miscalculation, could mean my very life. But I can't back out now. I'll switch on the light and change clothes. We watch a t-shirted arm put the Crime Master uniform, covered in a suit bag, behind a false wall of a closet. In the final panel, the Crime Master's not going to sleep. He throws some green slacks on, grabs a sky blue button up, puts that on, and while it on the table in front of him, vanity mirror behind him, finally monologues out loud. And now, it's time for Frederick Foswell to return to his job as news reporter for J. Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle. Frederick Foswell, former big man, master planner, is up to his same old tricks. Somebody get Dr. Connors on the line, he's gonna have to take notes again. And I gotta give this guy Foswell a lot of credit. He's been up all night planning his masterstroke, and he doesn't look tired at all. Just standing here monologuing in the third person, getting ready for work. Okay, now that everything's thoroughly confused, let's return to Peter Parker's house and start picking up the pieces. Dot, dot, dot. Pete's sitting at the kitchen table, stage right in his Forest Hills home in standard goldenrod gear. That's goldenrod vest, that's red tie, Steve Job blue slacks. He's got a cup in his hand and a stack of Aunt May's wheat cakes, his favorite food, in front of him. While Aunt May in a green sweater, brown shirt, perfectly ponytailed white hair, stands with her back to him, a coffee kettle in her left hand. Pete's thinking it's time to figure out what May did with his Spidey costume, so he brings it up. He says, I guess it was silly of me to try to wear a Spider-Man costume to that party, Aunt May. Oh, by the way, where did you? May's not having it. She says they're not going to discuss it, that as far as she's concerned, the matter's Closed. Pete, his cheek filled with wheat cakes, his right eyebrow raised, staring off panel, thinks he's never going to see that outfit again. He takes his loss, finishes eating, and grabs his blazer, hoping he can get the costume Jameson took from him on the rooftop. He tells May he's going to see her later, that he's running over to the Daily Bugle, and she tells him, doting as she often is, to take the bus home if it rains. Not long afterwards, we find dot dot dot. Pete strolling through the bullpen of the Daily Bugle towards a damsel never in distress in the fire red dress, Betty Brant, her bob flawless as usual. As she watches him approach, her right hand hits her hip and it stays there. Betty wastes no time. Well, well, hello, Peter. Have you any new plans to catch Spider-Man today? Pete realizes he's in for it, asking Betty how long she's going to hold a grudge. She turns her back to him, raises a finger like, excuse me. She says if Pete wants to be palsy-wowsy with JJ, more power to him. And Pete snaps. All right. First you write letters from that leaves because you feel sorry for him. Then you worry about Spider-Man. How about having a good word for Peter Parker? Drama. But Betty's not soft. She gets right up in his grill. You mean the Peter Parker who's been dating Liz Allen and who has another girlfriend whom he's never even mentioned to me? Namely, Mary Jane Watson? Pete's in open-mouthed shock. He says he doesn't even know Mary Jane Watson. But Betty's in her bag now. She points a finger in Pete's face, tirading. She says it's bad enough she already had to deal with Liz, but now it's on as introducing her to other girls. She asks how many more girlfriends Pete has. Pete throws her hand up. He's shouting now. Look, I can't help it if my aunt has been trying to get me to date Mary Jane. I never even saw her. It's, as the Brits say, a full-on row. 
But I'm gonna throw a flag on the play. The call? Holding on Team Goldenrod. Pete denying ever meeting Mary Jane, which is true. But not that he's been dating Liz Allen. Back to their argument spills into the final panel. Betty calls Pete Casanova, telling him to open his eyes because MJ is hard to miss. And Pete goes full on misogynist. His hand on his forehead, eyes toward the ceiling. He screams, Boy, the only thing worse than a hot tempered female is a jealous hot tempered female. A little word to the wise, Pete old pal. Don't go around referring to women as females in moments like these. But this argument's gone on long enough. Nobody tirades in this office except the tirader himself. JJ swings his door wide with his right hand, cigar lit in his left, and now he's shouting, What in Sam Hell is all the racket out here? I imagine the whole bullpen's just standing around with popcorn. This is better than the young and the restless. On six, JJ restores order. His blue sequin tie loose, his sleeves rolled up, his brown pants beltless. I imagine he was working in his office in his boxers. He steps between Betty and Pete. Raising an open palm to his girl Friday, he shouts, Get back to work, Miss Brat! And has words for his demon photographer pointing toward the door. And Parker, this is an office, not an arena. If you have any photos to sell me, go do your shouting on some street corner. Told my man to go scream in the street like a person holding the end is near signs. Pete, sulking with his hands in his pockets, slinks off towards the exit. The camera zooms out and we get a view of the bullpen. A black guy filing papers away in a filing cabinet. A sandy-haired guy sitting with his back to us in front of JJ. And Foswell at his typewriter in the foreground as Pete strolls by. JJ's a busy man. He's got Pete to hit the bricks and without missing a beat, has gone right back to being way past busy enough. He shouts across the bullpen at Foswell, telling the man to bring his file on Green Goblin and Crime Master because he wants to run a story on it in the Sunday Supplement. According to IGI.com, supplements are printed materials which have news context and are distributed free with newspapers. Newspaper supplements have softer news than news in main newspapers. And I imagine at the dawn of the Age of Heroes, two mass villains fighting for control of the rackets isn't making the main paper news until the action begins. Back to Pete walks past Foswell, turns a corner, and does an about face to watch Foswell and JJ talk, thinking that everyone believes Foswell's gone straight but he doesn't trust the guy as far as Aunt May can toss him. Aunt May can't toss that man an inch in front of herself. While JJ in the foreground, pouring over the foul Foswell watching, says, So far, there's no definite tie-in between the goblin and that nut. That's what he says! I keep digging nuts. away. And Foswell says he's on it. While no one's looking, Pete, his spidey sense of tingle, walks over to Foswell's filing cabinet and slides a spider tracer into the band of Foswell's fedora. He's going to follow Foswell as soon as he gets his costume back. But until I manage to get myself another Spidey costume, there's not much of anything I can do, except work. And speaking of worries, a few minutes later, dot, dot, dot. I imagine Pete's not going to let a silly thing like no costume stop him from web swinging because he's back in Forest Hills in no time. Outside of Midtown High, where Flash, fashion on trash Thompson, is standing with the Foolsville faithful. He's wearing his standard green with envy turtleneck and olive slacks. We've got Sans bowtie Charlie in a maroon suit, Johnny Carson in a suede leather jacket and SJB pants, and a sandy-haired kid in a lavender suit. Behind Pete, a brown-haired girl in a pink dress, and the brunette who ratted Liz out to flash about dating our friend, look on. A tumbleweed rolls past off-panel, I'm sure, and Flash, turning to spot Pete, wastes no time. Well, well, look who's here. Old puny Parker finally got tired of trying to hide from me. But Pete's still hot about his argument with Betty, so his temper flares immediately. Get off my back, loudmouth. I'm in no mood for your muscle-bound mirth today. And the same goes for your gang of grinning hyenas. Charlie asks who Pete's calling a hyena. 
The goldenrod kid, Fisk Clinch, tells him to look in a mirror to find out. Carson screams that Pete's a regular Bob Hope today. Leslie Towns Hope, better known as Bob Hope, one of the fathers of American stand-up comedy, was a British-American comedian, actor, vaudevillian, singer, dancer, and author. In his almost 80-year career, Hope lived on the silver screen, appearing in more than 70 films, starring in 54 of them. He acted on Broadway in the 1920s, then took his act to the big time of radio and film beginning in 1934. In film, he's best known for his Road 2 comedies, beginning with Road to Singapore in 1940 and ending with Road to Hong Kong in 1962, mainly alongside fellow legends Bing Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour. Hope hosted his first show on the radio in 1937 with the Woodbury Soap Hour, and a year later hosted the Pepsodent Show starring Bob Hope, which would later go on to become the number one radio show in the country. The man was Casey Kasem before Casey Kasem. But the man wasn't done entertaining though. Beginning in 1950, he hosted countless television specials. Did I mention comics? In the early 1950s, national periodical publications, better known today as DC Comics, ran a 109-issue comic using the man's likeness with legendary draftsman Neil Adams drawing the final four issues. Hope hosted the Academy Awards 19 times, a record I can't see anyone breaking. Billy Crystal's a distant second with nine hosting gigs. On May 1st, 1941, Hope performed for the United Services Organization for the first time in California and continued to perform for America's troops for the next 50 years, headlining 57 times. I have never seen a Bob Hope movie. I knew the man from this. He provided funds to rescue the Eltham Little Theater in England, one of his favorites, and the theater was renamed in his honor in 1982. He was the honorary chairman of Fight for Sight, a nonprofit that funds medical research and vision and ophthalmology, and donated $100,000 to create the Fight for Sight Fund. His list of awards and honors first line says the man received over 2,000, including 54 honorary university doctorates. Eat your heart out, Snoops Richards. JFK gave him a Congressional Gold Medal. Lyndon Johnson gave him a Medal of Freedom. The Jefferson Awards gave him the S. Roger Horchow Award for Greatest Public Service by a Private Citizen. In 1995, he received the National Medal of Arts and a Ronald Reagan Freedom Award two years later. He's the only civilian to receive the Air Force's Order of the Sword for his significant contributions to the enlisted corps. I've already mentioned those degrees. George Bush created a Bob Hope Patriot Award and the Academy, knowing how its bread was buttered, pulled out all the stops. They gave him an Oscar in 1940 for unselfish service, another in 44 for service to the Academy, another in 52 for his contribution to laughter in the world. In 59, they gave him the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award and in 65, the first Academy Gold Medal for unique and distinguished service. Man had so many golden men, they had to give him a golden necklace. If that ain't enough, he had three top 40 pop chart hits in his lifetime. When did he sleep? All that said, Hope was a dogged womanizer who had multiple extramarital affairs and dalliances. Part of the 2020 film, Misbehavior's Plot, is based on his cheating. Thanks, Wikipedia. Back to, where was I? Oh, right. Carson calls Pete a regular Bob Hope. Flash says, yeah, he's going to be a regular in a hospital if he doesn't shut up. Bowtie Charlie's grabbed the tie from who knows where and jerking a thumb over his shoulder at Pete, asks Flash if the mouse is trying to become a lion today. And Pete has had it. Rushing forward, he shouts, okay, you brainless baboons, you laughed at me for the last time. He dives headfirst, arms wide, into the gang of bullies to open page seven 
in full view of Big Brass Davis himself, the principal who's watching in shock through his open window. Big Brass Davis stared down the Sandman fearlessly in ASM number four. That's King Oswald, King Janitor, here on me and my friend Pete. So he should know all about courage in the face of what seems like certain doom. But a lot of times, we can't see that bravery in others. But I digress. Back to not hearing the bullying of the Foolsville faithful's taunting of the Goldenrod Kid, Davis can't believe his eyes and wonders what's come over Peter Parker. It is bedlam. Charlie's upside down, Lavender's suit dives out of the way, Flash is tackled around the waist, and Carson is on his knees looking up in shock. They are kicking up dust like an old Looney Tunes cartoon. But suddenly, a sharp female voice rings out as Peter Parker's rage fades away before he can fully apply his awesome spider strength. Liz Allen in a pink top and lavender skirt leaps fearlessly into the fray, just in time too, because Pete's right fist is raised and he's about to swing it cause he's got it. Flash is on his back, Pete's left fist is a centimeter from the Brandex kid's face, Charlie's on his back now, Lavender's at the bottom of the dog pal, and Liz is in the thick of it. She grabs Pete's arm, shouting for him to stop. Stop it, I say! Pete has a moment of clarity. He thinks, Holy smoke! What am I doing? Another minute, and I'd have exposed myself to Spider-Man! I'm sure if Aunt May saw this, she'd scream, Good heavens! Or, my word! She probably faints. Liz manages to get between Pete and Flash, holding the former back, and looking over her shoulder at the ladder. Flash shouts at her, telling her to stop protecting the milksop. Liz says protecting him? He was doing fine in your four turn five on one. While Pete thinks that Flash is lucky Liz came along when she did. Pete and Flash get right up in each other's face in the next panel, glaring at each other, but both addressing their words to Liz in between them. Pete tells her not to worry, that he's not afraid of a bird brain like Flash Thompson, and Liz is pissed. She says Pete's become as bad as Flash, and she shouts that she thought Pete was different. Flash gets witty, says Parker will be when he's through with him, but Liz has seen enough. In tears, she races past both boys shouting that she's through with both of them, that she never wants to see them again. And they're in senior year now, so this can come true. Flash, idiotic as usual, says he'll make sure she never sees Parker again. She said it to you too, Flash. While Pete thinks, first Benny is mad at me, and now Liz. What a Don Juan I am. So Pete's trying to be the trickster of Seville and the stone guest, but he's much closer to the Hidalgo from La Mancha, Quixote. Translation? A bit of a joke. But nobody's laughing. A black kid in a green suit and olive tie races up to Pete, his thumb held above his head and pointing towards the school. He's all smiles, probably down with the Foolsville faithful, and he tells Pete that Principal Davis wants to see him right now on the double and that Pete's in for it. Flash's gang is eating this up. Sandy says Davis thinks Pete started the fight because he only saw the kids fist flying, while Bowtie Charlie hopes Davis expels Pete. Sidebar. Once in middle school during lunch, my sworn junior high enemy threw milk in my face in front of all the kids in the lunchroom. Not a grown-up in sight. The only thing that stopped me from trying to murderize him was my friend Jebo. Shout out to Jebo, who held me back, gave me a napkin, tried to calm me down as the kid took off for the schoolyard. I swear I looked under every rock in the schoolyard that day. I did not see him in the schoolyard that day. We had the same homeroom though, so when the bell rang, I raced up the stairs, got back to class, and still seething, I took the front legs of his desk, one in each hand, and flipped that thing end over end. Books were flying, glasses, everything, you name it, came flying out the desk. Papers, pencils, I think I saw a unicorn. Right in front of our teacher, 
the great Mr. Ant-Man. I got in-school suspension for that. The kid didn't get so much as a slap on the wrist because when asked why I did it, I didn't say anything about the milk. I gave them nothing. I tell this story for a reason. Because as the kids stand around thinking about all the awful things that could befall our hero, Flash spins off saying he's going to go find Liz and turn up the charm to get back in her good graces. But a few minutes later, dot, dot, dot. In the final panel, Flash has actually gone to hang outside of Principal Davis's office. Hiding around the corner, he watches as Pete exits the man's office with his shoulders hunched, hands in pocket. Davis tells Pete he'll let him know the decision he's going to make about his future later on. Pete takes it on the chin thinking he should have known better. He's not going to stand around talking about what led him to his actions. He made the action. He's going to take the responsibility for it because he's got great power and you already know the rest. My hero. Flash is shocked. He thinks, I couldn't help overhearing outside the door. Parker took the whole responsibility for himself. He didn't even try to blame any of us. We turn the page and we're on the infinity, infinity, infinity page. Page eight. Just in time to witness the Brandex kid show one of his, you can say it, flashes of good. We watch Flash bully Pete regularly, but he also tried to look out for our friend in ASM number 10, telling Pete not to run off at the mouth about the big man and co because he could be seriously hurt. And he tried to apologize to Pete in ASM number 9 after goading our friend into a boxing match in ASM number 8. And in ASM number 18, he dressed up as the Spider-Man to defend our hero's honor when everyone was calling Spidey a blamed coward. So Flash isn't just bully, bully, bully. He's got nuance. I love to hate him because he does things like what's next that make me hate to love him. He walks up to Big Brass and his head lowered, says Mr. Davis has to know the whole story, that Parker wasn't to blame. Davis throws an arm over Flash's shoulder, says he's glad Flash came to tell him this, and asks the Brandex kid, a hero in this moment, accepting his responsibility to step into his office. But once again, our scene changes as we see the reappearance of a now familiar figure. Dot, dot, dot. We're inside of a random safe house where four mobsters are holed up when the front door bursts open. A goon in an SJB colored suit shouts, Look out! It's the Crime Master! A gangster on the stairs goes for his gun, but the Crime Master already has his drawn and pulls the trigger. One of the gangsters screams, he winged the boss. We having a chance. He's a crack shot. And Crime Master gets right to business. You dare to openly defy my warning, and so I'll now make an example of you for the other gangs. He races into the room and cracks SJB across the jaw with a right hook that he leans all the way into, sending the goon flying backwards into the others in the room, continuing his monologue. None of you have the brains or the skill or the nerve to stop me. And now I'll give you one last chance. Will you accept me as the kingpin of the city's gangs, or... A goon in a gray suit shouts that they're going to join. He just saw his man get clobbered. He saw his boss man take a bullet. He will do anything the crime master says. And the crime master says, good. That with this gang under his belt, the others will surely fall in line. And across town, in the city's most exclusive men's club, dot, dot, dot. J. Jonah Jameson in a dark brown suit and blue tie is strolling through his gentleman's club, past members standing, sitting, reading newspapers, living. We've got opulent orb lamps with golden bases, orange suede curtains, and comfortable looking armchairs in assorted colors. A gray-haired guy sits reading a daily bugle, and seeing J.J. stroll past, asks how the miserable magnate can spend so much time away from the bugle with all the crime jumping off in the city. Jameson says, I have the number one paper in town. I've got so much inside information coming in from my staff, 
I don't need to be there all the time. A balding man, his car Winslow working, Shade Brown, watches JJ sit down and cross his legs before asking the magnate if he knows who the Green Goblin is. Another guy chimes in asking if JJ knows who the Crime Master is. JJ throws his head back chuckling. He says, Sorry gentlemen, I can't reveal the inside story yet, but keep reading the bugle. I have a big expose soon. Like you ain't getting nothing for free out of me, especially not information. That's how I make them donuts. I am a newspaper magnate. I traffic in information. In the final panel, a red-haired guy in a green suit and orange tie, leaning his arm on the back of an armchair, his left hand in his pants pocket says, One of your reporters is this fellow Foswell, who used to be a big-time criminal himself. Is it wise for you to employ such a notorious character? The guy sitting in this armchair that Red's leaning on says JJ deserves credit for giving the man a second chance, especially because he's an ex-con. JJ pulls a cigar, lights it, and nearly breaks his arm, patting himself on the back. You know what they say about me, gentlemen? I'm all heart. And besides, Foswell works like a dog. So it's not about his heart or being a good guy. Foswell is an earner. He puts in work. But now, before you start thinking the name of our magazine should be changed to the life of Jonah Jameson, let's return to our swinging teenage hero. Dot, dot, dot. Page 9 opens to the Goldenrod Kid walking past the costume shop. Past all the masks of goblins and monsters, he sees a Spider-Man costume and thinks that's just what he needs. He goes inside and speaks to the shop owner who tells Pete he'll let him have the costume on the cheap, but tells the kid he'd be better served with a Frankenstein suit because those are selling like hotcakes. First, little literary snobbery, not a lot, just a little, it's Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein made the monster. The green-skinned dead dude walking around with his hands raised your OAC, that's Frankenstein's monster. Back to, Pete says I want hotcakes, I'll go to an IHOP, or better, have some wheat cakes from my auntie. Bag up the suit. The shopkeep knows the customer's always right. He asks if Pete wants it wrapped. Pete says, yeah, it's a present for his den mother as a housewarming gift. A few minutes later, Pete's on top of a nearby rooftop, and you already know. Suited, yes. Booted, of course. Pulling the Spidey shirt over his chest. Luckily, they make these things out of those new stretch fabrics nowadays, so one size fits almost anybody. And now, at last, I can pick up the signals from my little gizmo and investigate Frederick Foswell. His spider tracer tracker on a low chimney next to him, he grabs it, clips it onto his belt, and you already know, Spidey's on the prowl. And if he ain't excited doing it, leaping from the rooftop, he screams, Wowee! It sure feels good to be back in action again. I feel like an eagle who's been let out of a cage. I might as well face it. Being Spider-Man is just plain habit for me. It's like going out with girls. I can't give it up! He is addicted to girls and superheroing. I'm starting to think Pete may just be a womanizing action junkie. But he barely travels two rooftops when the shirt of the suit rides up his chest past his belly button and the boots and socks immediately lose their elasticity. Spidey, looking as if he's suddenly eaten a Mario mushroom and grown two sizes, lands on a roof screaming. That's what I get for being the only superhero in town who's nutty enough That's to run around That's what he says. Costume. Nutty. But Spidey won't be deterred. Using his web shooters, he pulls his boots up and webs them in place before doing the same to his gloves. You can bet that won't last long, though. This fast fashion Spidey suit is literally coming apart at the seams. Minutes later, two colorful figures pass each other in the night, neither realizing how close he is to the other. Dot, dot, dot. And we see in the foreground Green Goblin crouched low on his glider, shooting past, heading stage left while Spidey, above and behind him on a rooftop in the background, stalks forward, stage right. Spidey's spider sense is slacking right now. Green Goblin's proved he's dangerous to Spider-Man, and Spidey scrapped with him more than any other villain in the last year. 
His head should be splitting, but no. So the story continues, the two ships passing each other quietly in the night. Whitey follows his tracer to Foswell's window and finds it open. Seeing no one inside, he thinks B&E action immediately and crawls into the window. But Spidey really is no criminal. The first thing he does when his feet touch down is turn the light on. You never turn the light on. Either way, Spidey spots Foswell's hat and decides he's going to have a look around and go snoops Richards immediately. But at that moment, another form approaches the apartment from a different direction. Dot, dot, dot. The crime master is strolling along the nearby rooftop towards his apartment. And I just want to say I love how confident Foswell, if this is Foswell, moves in his crime master costume. Just swagger. He strolls across the roof, spots the light on in the window, and pulls his revolver immediately, thinking whoever's inside of his apartment needs to be eliminated. Meanwhile, Spidey's inside holding Foswell's hat, wondering if the man switched his clothes because he found the tracer in the band. Before he can figure it out, his spider sense goes crazy. Outside of the window, we see the crime master raise a white gloved hand and cock back the hammer of his revolver. On 11, Spidey leaps backward, both hands raised, dropping the hat and spider tracer as a bullet flies through the window. And we got action. Thinking he might as well be a moving target, Spider-Man leaps through the window towards a nearby rooftop and spots Crime Master, who shouts Spidey may be fast, but a bullet's much faster. And the chase is on. Crime Master takes cover and fires another bullet at the webhead, who twists his body upside down, midair, agility on best ever, to dodge, thinking, He's not kidding. That one missed by a webhead. He's wearing a mask and muffling his voice. I can't recognize him. He lands on the sheer wall of a building and standing with his body horizontally, takes a moment to think. He knows it's not the goblin or anyone else he knows from that getup, so it must be the crime master. Wrong time to ponder, Spidey. Get back too. And he does. He leaps onto the ledge, but has to make a side leap as soon as he lands as the crime master sends another bullet at him. Trying to go on the offensive, Spidey scales a water tower and sprays webbing towards the crime master from behind it with both shooters in a high arching shot. But the crime master, standing beneath the steel cover, doesn't even have to move. The webbing hits the slab above his head and doesn't touch him at all. And crime master, webbing dripping in front of him, fires another shot as Spidey leaps from the water tower to a nearby ledge and ducks to dodge the bullet as it ricochets off the ledge. Spidey's been counting bullets and he's seen Dr. No, so he knows the crime master's empty and you know Spidey makes his move. He leaps over the side of the ledge, knees to chest, arms out of his side, towards the crime master, screaming. Why so surprised, Sweeney? You didn't expect me to let you reload, did you? But as Spidey falls towards him, the crime master looks up calmly, so calm, holding a small green laser pen looking device. And he is talking his smack. The sight of Spider-Man charging in rage may terrify others, but not the crime master. Spidey thinks, I'll be darned if he doesn't sound as though he means that. I wonder what he's got up his sleeve. Still diving headlong towards the Rorschach masked villain. And Crime Master clicks a button on the green device, spraying Spidey full on in the face. Spidey, stumbling backwards, screams, Yes! He braces against the brick wall, trying to keep himself standing up to open 13, but the Crime Master is on him. Throwing his patented right hand, he clubs Spidey on the left shoulder, screaming that Spidey shouldn't have thought he'd be such an easy conquest. But he realizes hitting the golden liability is like punching a stone wall. Back against that wall, Spidey goes into the playbook and Spidey tries to leap. But the gas is slowing his reflexes and Crime Master lunges forward, pushing our hero towards the ledge of the roof. 
We're on that cover action shot now, and Spidey is reeling. Crime Master throws another right cross. This guy's only got one punch, and Spidey isn't hurt by the blows, but he is feeling it. His blows aren't hurting me, but if I don't get this headpiece on soon, I, I'll suffocate. He backs up towards the ledge, his right foot pressed against it, and with another weak right cross from the Crime Master, tumbles over the side. Crime Master screams. I did it. I defeated Spider-Man. Spidey plunges towards the earth, head first. Uh, free falling. I imagine that's what he's thinking. As he falls, Spidey pulls the mask from his face, shouting that he can breathe again, while the crime master watches him fall before turning his back to the scene. He shouts that Spider-Man will never bother him again, thinking the webhead's gonna be dead soon, and now he has real business to attend to. This was just a little lunch for the crime master. On 14, Spider-Pete, upside down in free fall, his vision cleared, realizes he's in danger. The cheap gloves of his costume sliding down his wrists once more from the speed of the air racing past him. He sprays webbing from both wrists towards a nearby rooftop. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit. And holding on tight, he flips right side up, slamming into the sheer wall of the building. Clutching his throat with his left hand in the next panel, he shouts, Man, that was a close one. I'll just stay here for a minute while I clear all the gas out of my lungs. He takes a moment and scales the sheer wall, but his costume is feeling it. The boots down at his ankles, his gloves down at his wrist, his shirt now a midriff. Spidey reaches the top of the roof, but the crime master is gone. He hops up onto the rooftop and begins webbing his costume back into proper Spidey form monologue. It could have been Fonzo himself. He might have been returning to his room, and then he saw me and decided to finish me off. Before leaping from the roof and web swinging towards the Daily Bugle to see if Foswell returned there. On 15, Spidey clinging upside down on the sheer wall, peers into the Daily Bugle as Betty strolls by inside reading a letter. Spidey thinks, still no sign of him, but there's Betty, probably reading another letter from that blame Ned Leeds. And he may be right, because Betty is cheesing like a mouse, well, I mean, with cheese. Hey, look, not all of them are gonna be good. That boy Ned got away with words. Spidey thinks he's got no time to worry about that now and creeps into the window of JJ's office to begin searching for his costume, but doesn't find it. He wonders what Jameson did with it before the door to the office opens. JJ enters telling Betty to reserve a table for him at his club. Spidey slams the door closed behind JJ and gets right to business. Hi, cheerful Charlie. You went to so much trouble to find me last time we met that I thought I'd return the favor now. Jameson shouts, Spider-Man! Spidey says it sounds like music when the miserable magnate says it. Jameson hasn't done anything wrong though, so he's cucumber cool. He slides his left hand into his pocket, takes a puff of his cigar, and tells Spidey that if he's here to gloat, he should hurry up because he's got work to do. Busy man that, JJ, so you already know. Spidey taunts him though. His left fist on his hip, right hand on his thigh. Little contraposto action, he leans in. He asks, uh, don't go away, man. Are you still sulking because you tried to capture me and only wound up with my costume? JJ, not bothering to turn around, tells Spidey to get lost because he doesn't have the costume. Smythe, the guy who created the Spider-Slaying robot, does. And Spidey's costume woes are getting worse. Now, the mask is coming undone from his collar. He climbs up onto the windowsill, telling JJ he's leaving because the man isn't the fun, cheerful guy he used to be. In the final panel, Spidey clings to the sheer wall of the bugle, webbing his mask back into his collar, thinking... Poor John, I think he's just about giving up on me. I don't know whether to be happy or sad. Mm, I better seal the mask with some sticky webbing fluid. At least I know it'll stay on until the web evaporates. 
16 opens to Spidey Web swinging back to Fosgo's apartment to see what else he can learn from the reporter and possible criminal. He's inside and searching around in no time, but coming up empty, thinks he should have known the guy was too smart to leave any evidence out in the open before spotting a calendar on the wall. Walking over to it, he notices something. At first glance, it seems innocent enough, but why would anyone mark off a small section of the waterfront on this calendar scene? I just better pay a little visit to that area. And Spidey's about to do that little thing. He's heading to the Parker docks. But at that very same time, long before Spidey can reach the spot, a secret meeting of the Underworld's leaders is in session. Dot, dot, dot. We've got the heads of the six biggest crime families sitting in an office talking, and they've decided what they're going to do. A redhead in a dark blue suit says one of them will go meet with the crime master to hear the deal he's pitching. Thick eyebrows, still thinking about his exploded car, says he'll go, that they better accept the crime master's deal. He hops on the bus of the gutter between panels and meets with the crime master in the next, who tells him he made the smart move joining up with him before telling Bushy Brows to round up the gang and meet him at the waterfront at the deserted piers in the West 40s. My people, we're headed to Hell's Kitchen! But now, just to show that you can't ever take things for granted in our tales, a new character enters the scene. A stool pigeon known only as Patch. And we see a guy with a black patch covering his eye. They were in line, a pork pie hat, maroon turtleneck, and green pinstripe blazer. He's in a phone booth giving the crime master's game away to the police. The cop on the other end of the line tells Patch he's done good work, that this is the tip they've been waiting for. And in the final panel, we see the chief of police talking to the cops on the force. We've got Joe, Tomas, Mike, Ike, and Bobby Blackman listening as he tells them, You've got to move carefully. There's no law against men having a meeting. Not even if we know they're underworld big shots. But if we keep them under surveillance and play our cards right, we might get enough evidence on them to put them away for good. Okay, you have your orders. Now take off. And I'm sure Joe and Tomas get up out of the meeting and start walking down the hall, arguing over body counts. 17 opens to Spidey on a rooftop at the waterfront, stalking the abandoned warehouse. Looks like my hunch was correct. Something is definitely in the wind. Otherwise, all those cars wouldn't be bringing those hard-looking characters to a deserted pier. In the next panel, Bushy Brows, dressed to the nines in a forest green suit, lime green tie, black shirt, and white skimmer hat with a purple band, is heading inside of the warehouse with three goons. He says he brought some of his muscle men just in case and asks where the crime master is. Crime master's number two. Nice to meet you, number two. Says he'll show up when everyone arrives, not before. Now get inside. But another conference is secretly taking place nearby. Dot, dot, dot. And Green Goblin, standing on his glider, ready for action, as usual, is livid. You can't do this without me. The whole plan was originally mine. If you try to squeeze me out, I'll... Of course he's talking to the crime master who, back to us, is leaning on a brick wall with his right hand and holding a revolver behind his back with his left. He tells the goblin, You'll do nothing. Not so long as I have the proof of your real identity locked in a safe deposit vault. He goes on to say that if he dies, the police are going to open the vault and find out exactly who the goblin is before the goblin aims a finger laser beam at the crime master's left hand. And we got action. Goblin shouts that the crime master's a cheap double crosser and that he has other ways outside of murder to get revenge before rocketing away on his glider. Crime master fires a shot, but the thick black smoke billowing from the goblin glider masks the villain's escape. Crime Master shouts that a bullet is going to end the tricky Goblin forever. But Goblin's not soft. He hears the threat, he pivots in the final panel, and hurls a pumpkin bomb at Crime Master. 
careful not to hit the man so he isn't killed, but close enough to singe the hairs on his arm. There is smoke flying, debris flying, pier wood and salt in the air, and salt just spilling from the goblin. But Goblin, not willing to risk killing his former partner, sits low on his bladder and rockets around the corner to open 18. Crime Master is elated. He's screaming that he scared the Green Goblin off. Goblin, one of the best smack talkers in the game, replies that Crime Master's a tadpole. He's a tiger, and he's letting Crime Master live a little longer. His fist shaking with rage, he promises that Crime Master will never take over the rackets without him, and that he's going to use every way save killing the traitor to stop him. Meanwhile, Spidey's on the move, racing towards the back of the warehouse he's on top of. He thinks he's going to work his way around to the back of the meeting warehouse to get a better look at what's going on. He spots the six families inside and thinks that there may be too many goons for him to handle, and he has to call the police. Spidey's spider sense must be on the fritz this issue because he doesn't even notice that the Green Goblins just spotted him and decided to tail him. Goblin stalks our hero from above, thinking he's going to circle around. But be careful to avoid Spidey's sixth sense. But no worries, Spidey's spider sense is clearly as faulty as his costume tonight. Goblin rises higher above our hero's head and cuts the engine on his glider, landing with the full weight of the glider and his body on top of Spidey's head. And the golden liability is seeing stars to open 19. He sprays webbing from both shooters on instinct, pure instinct, behind him but caught by surprise, misses with both strands as Goblin goes to work. Inches away from Spidey, he pulls a pumpkin bomb and hurls it at our hero, who's still standing on two wobbly legs, thinks, have to hang on, have to use spider sense to keep track of stun bomb. So Spidey gets spidery and webs a small shield as fast as he can in front of him from both shooters. But although the amazing adventurer's quick thinking succeeds in saving him from a fatal direct hit, there isn't time to hurl the bomb far enough away before it explodes. The bomb goes off directly in front of our hero and we get a gorgeous panel in red and black shadowing of Spidey's head and torso jerked back as he screams, "Oh!" He crumples into a cinder block wall, knocked out. After four battles with the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, Green Goblin has finally managed to get a W against our hero and he wastes no time. Landing beside the unconscious Spider-Man, he screams, I beat him in last, but his headpiece won't come off. I want to unmask him, but it's stuck too tight. Well, there'll be time for that later. Right now, I have something more important to do. Spidey's webbed up knockoff costume has saved his identity for a moment. Meanwhile, directly under the pier, the mysterious crime master cautiously makes his way to a ladder. And we get a shot of the crime master walking with his usual purpose. Beneath the pier, victory, the only thought in his mind. This is the moment I've been waiting for. The moment when I take over as kingpin of the city's underworld. On 20, he rises through a trapdoor in the warehouse thinking that everyone's here to kiss the ring of New York's new crime kingpin. He saunters towards the curtain of a stage and we see at least 60 mobsters waiting for his arrival. A guy at the edge of the stage shouts for the crowd to pipe down. The man of the hour is here. And crime master's ready for his moment. His left fist on his hip his right raised in the air, he shouts down to the goons below. The first thing I want to say is, from now on, I'm the boss. The only boss. And if anyone has any objections, let them speak up now. But nobody's that stupid. Nobody says a word. This is his moment. He is a shining, shining candle. But he's a candle in the sun. 
because the Green Goblin just pulled back the curtain and stepped onto the stage with an unconscious Spider-Man under his left arm, and he is dazzling. As he says, in this moment, All right, Crime Master, I'm speaking up. This is the Green Goblin, saying that you're about to have the shortest reign on record. One goon screams, Look, it's the Goblin with Spider-Man. Another chimes in, You captured him. What's going to happen next? And beneath this scene, we get a caption box. Next issue, the secret of Frederick Foswell will be revealed as you thrill one of the greatest battle royales of all. So, join us again for Spider-Man number 27. And don't forget, you're webbing. And we're out! According to my memory, this is the first ever true to be continued for The Amazing Spider-Man where he is in peril. And what a position to be in. Unconscious two mass villains, and a gang of gangs who hang and bang who be waiting for him to regain his consciousness. What an issue. You want to know what happens next? Come back next week when we get back into it with Amazing Spider-Man number 27. Bring back my goblin to me. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comics from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through DC Comics Manhunter, Volume 3, Number 32, Forgotten Part 2. District Attorney turned superheroine Kate Spencer has her hands full in this one. Someone's killing women and dumping their bodies in the El Paso desert. Manhunter's on the case, but things ain't as cut and dry as they seem. We've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. Head over to patreon.com HSPP and sign up to the Keykeeper or High Council tiers now to listen. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team, Parker's 11. You got questions? Send them to me and my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. To Parker's 11, the lapel pens for season one are in production and will be shipped out as soon as they're shipped in to me. Again, thank you so much for your support. I cannot do it without you. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care. Please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm back, baby! I'm back! But I'm out of here.